Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the Cattle Station Classroom Podcast, where we learn about the North Australian beef industry and answer your questions. So, it doesn't matter how far from town you are, because we're bringing the classroom to you. Welcome back to another Station Sticky Beak episode. This series was created to share an insight into why pastoralists do what they do, given their circumstances, whether it be location, country type, rainfall zone, infrastructure, ownership model, market, or any of the other many factors influencing management decisions. In each Station Sticky Beak episode, I'll chat to station owners and managers about a range of topics, broadly covering country, infrastructure, cattle, and people to show that there are many ways to achieve positive outcomes for people, livestock, the land, and business. So let's get into it. My name's Sean Darcy. I'm from Linden Station, right up the north of the Gascoigne region in Western Australia. Uh, we've got 450,000 hectares here, run oh, anywhere from three to 4,000 breeders, down as low as two and a half or two sometimes in severe droughts. Rain, we're 10-inch rainfall average, but it's very, very unreliable. Our medium's probably more like 8 inches, and you know it can come summer or winter or sort of neither. Uh, so most of our cattle go down to our farms. Um, we sell cast-for-age cows and cull cows straight to normally Harvey beef or, you know, another abattoir down south. My, all our, most of our young cattle go to our farm and, uh, and we try and get them as heavy as we possibly can there and either go into feedlot or sometimes we feed them ourselves. And then, you know, the end, the, the end game's, um, abattoirs. So Harvey mainly. That's where most of them end up. So everything's for domestic, not, uh, live export. Uh, we live export very few, sometimes just bulls that are, you know, a bit big to cut. So we'll put a few of them on live export, but, and sometimes heifers, uh, sometimes we'll live export some heifers if there's not the domestic options for them or we don't have the feed to get them through to a slaughter weight. All right. So our first section is country. So can you tell me about the seasons on Linden? Uh, well, we're, we're still, we're predominantly summer rainfall. Our biggest month is February, but our second biggest month is June. So we can get, we can get either winter or summer rain. We rely on, you know, thunderstorms quite a bit in summer and the odd cyclone, but, uh, it's, it's quite unreliable. So, you know, we, we stock very conservatively. Uh, the last couple of years, we've had a bit of summer and a bit of winter rain and the country looks fantastic, but that's, that's quite rare to get both. Yeah. So, uh, so we, we're, we're, it's just, it's quite difficult to plan around our seasons because, um, they're just so unreliable. 
Yeah, so it sounds like there's no real defined wet and dry season. Not really, no. Okay. And and there's no, you know, there's it's very hard to, to think of a critical date because if you actually put us on that, if you actually put our rainfall on that Rain Man program, it doesn't come up with any point oh, really? where you've got 80% chance of having had a break. You stumped the program. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously green dates or key, key dates, whatever people call them, are quite heavily pushed in industry and they are applicable in many areas. It sounds like it's obviously a lot harder to apply them here. How do you manage then if you don't know, uh, if if you usually have summer rainfall but a winter rainfall can come in and kind of, I guess, can it can it save? If you don't get the, the summer rainfall, can a winter rainfall save it or is it not as effective? No, it definitely can. Winter rainfall can definitely save it, but uh, you know, which makes it, you know, which makes it difficult to say, you know, our critical date sometime in April or which, which you might do otherwise because there's, um, you know, there is a chance of winter rain and, and you don't need that much winter rain to, to save a season or certainly, you know, save you from having to do a radical destock to get through to the next summer. So how so- do you manage that then? Cause it sounds like a big, like a what if, what if, you know, like let's say you don't get your summer rainfall and then, you're like well, normally people that don't get winter rainfall be like, okay, this is the time we need to start destocking, but you've still got a chance that there's rain coming and it's not like it's a one in a million chance, like there's a somewhat decent chance. So you just so you just keep a very close eye on your cattle if it hasn't rained for the summer. So you know, you you just always you're just always watching them and uh, very closely and seeing if the slip's starting or and, and then you can make your decision whether the righto will you know, we've, we've still got quite a, you know, you can make your decision in May that we've got to go, even though, you know, there might be a reasonable chance of a June rain. Um, or a lot of the time, you, you know, you, they'll, you know, they'll be okay and get through till July. And so you can, you know, you can sort of set your date then and while you go. Yeah. It's just keeping a very close eye on them. And, and I guess the condition sure of the country coming into it from previous absolutely, years. Absolutely. Yeah. There's so many factors. So it's really hard to, to have a prescriptive, you know, this is what we do. There's just a lot of factors you're considering. And knowing that, you know, if you say, right, these cattle are really slipping, you can start in the worst area. So you'd go straight, you know, you'd, you'd say, right, we're, we're going to go. We'll go to the worst area. And hopefully, you know, by the time we get that done, some winter rain might come and then you just keep going, keep going and waiting and seeing what happens. But so there's certainly yeah. no routine that, you know, every March we do this, every April we start mustering, every, you know, we do this is how it works every year. It sounds like it can be different and, every and year. And that's probably why there's not many corporates down here. Down in this part of the world, yeah. because you know it's it's um it's it's very much on you know there's there's not really a formula. So, what is the country type or types that you've got on Linden? Uh, so there's we've got a, a you know a really broad range of country types here. We're sort of where the Gascoigne meets the Pilbara. So you know a lot of the top ends your typical Pilbara spinifex with you know with with buffalo grass rivers running through them. We don't have much of that. Spinifex hilly country, but we do on the west side. We've got the you know the the um the spinifex on sand dunes, which is actually pretty handy country. And then we've got the spinifex on you know over clay, which is the and then it's not hard. It's all soft spinifex, or well, most of it's soft spinifex, but it's still you know it's less valuable. And then um, down this bottom end, we've got a lot of the Gascoigne typical Gascoigne Gibber plains. Most of that's the uh, Delacca land system. Um, and then fair bit of wash country, so you know mulga thickets, jam tree thickets, that kind of thing. Uh, that's very clayey country again. And then and then obviously your river, your river. You know there's um, uh, patches of river country snaking through the place. 
um, rivers and a lot of rivers and creeks. So, what are the main feed sources out here? Oh, well, buffalo grass is probably the main one. Um, that's all along the rivers and, um, most of the rivers and creeks have got buffalo in them and that pushes out onto the, you know, f- the loamy flats a fair bit. Um, uh, then in the more clay country, buffalo doesn't really like that. So we've got more of the tradition, you know, more of the native grasses, the ribbon and, and windmill grass and, and robe and plains grass and that sort of stuff. And then, and the country, you, there, there's quite a, Quite a bit of salt bush and blue bush, which is very handy sort of shrub feed. And then there's just, there's heaps of other shrubs and trees that cattle, you know, sort of select a little bit of as they graze. So it's, it's quite broad. There's a massive variety of stuff they can eat here, but you know, not that much of any of it. Are they quite preferential for the buffalo or for certain, like, are there lollies in that mix that they want? Oh, to they love first? the buffalo. Yeah, and then winter rain, you get all the you know your little herbages and stuff like that, and they just love that. And your little annual grasses like your button grass, and um, we have a lot of wind grass out on the plains. They really like that when it's green, uh, not so much when it dries off. But um, uh, they will. I mean, cattle sheep used to really over-select the salt bushes and blue bushes, so they took a massive hit in the early days through this neck of the woods. But they're but they're sort of starting to. Cattle don't hit them quite as hard, so they're making a pretty good comeback now. Um, but yeah, they, they, you know, well, as you know, cattle prefer grass and sheep kind of prefer shrubs, but, but the cattle, um, uh, yeah, they, 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 yeah, they just have a mix of everything. They have, you know, they, they do, they graze so many different plants. You mentioned you had some mulga country. What percentage, um, of top feed would you say is, makes up the cattle's diet? Well, it's pretty hard to know. They've actually, um, They've actually done, started to do some diet ID studies around here, which are shedding a bit more life on it, but a bit, bit more light on it. But, um, we're still to see some of those, some of the early ones they did. They found that, you know, quite a big proportion of the diet shrubs and it depends on the time of year. You know, after a big summer season, I'd, you know, I'd say, you know, probably 70% of it's your grasses. And when they dry off, I'd reckon it'd almost be the other way around. So what are your, I guess, your grazing and spelling strategies for this type of country then? Like you said, you've got a mix of everything. You've got a lot of different things but not a big quantity of one in particular, so it's not particularly dominant in one. You've got these different land systems. You've got a lot of river country. How do you try and get, I guess, get so, the cattle so to utilise So most it? of the place is set stocking. We've got, um, we rotate our followers but most of the cows are just set stocked but we, we, we're just playing with those numbers all the time. So... Um, if an area is really battling, we'll shut waters off and take cattle out of there and, you know, put them over the other side and that sort of thing. And, um, we do a bit of self herding to encourage cattle to where we want them more. Um, so we're just, it's, it's generally mostly set stock, but we're just tweaking all the time just to take the weight off. And we're just really conservative. So, you know, our stocking rate in big seasons is probably a quarter of what it could be. So we just, um, you know, we've, we've got nearly half a million hectares and, you know, normally we muster eight thousand cattle total. Or eight or so. You know, they've they've got plenty of room, um, and we're just really careful to to remain conservative, so that we've always got a bit of a buffer. We sort of plan our stocking rate, assuming that it's not going to rain. How does the self herding work? Well, you can just it's just encouraging cattle to do certain things by through animal behaviour techniques. So so it's basically you know you can move them along with attractants or 
or lick feeders or there's there's a lot of other little things you cue them you know you can cue them to a sound like an umpire's whistle is a pretty common one or a witch's so a sound which might be an umpire's whistle and a sight which is a witch's hat or something like that so you can drag them along and make them tend to prefer areas just from their behavior so you can you can just blow a whistle on a big flat somewhere and and throw a handful of pellets that you know throw a bucket full of pellets on the middle of the flat and and they'll and that you know some will for the first couple of days a few will arrive would have heard the whistle and they just make an association and you know months later you can do the same thing and cattle will come from everywhere do you find that they cuz i guess you're using that to try and even out the grazing pressure so they're not hammering just the lolly country they're coming and eating i guess like the vegetables too um do you find that when they come to the attractant they stay in that area or do they come and kind of eat those pellets and then bugger off back yeah, to the Yeah, no, lollies? they will be a bit. Um, so we use, we do use pellets in a lick feeder a little bit. We have it clamped right down. So, you know, they're only getting a small amount, but we can move them around with that. So some of that's to move cattle from maybe one water to another before you're going to shut a water off if you want to rest a bit of an area. But others is just, is, is for rehabilitation as well. So, so lick blocks, lick feeders and, you know, you, you, your lolly, you know, your treats with the whistle is um, can be used to, you know, get some herd impact on a scalded flat or, or you know, if you need to put a bale of hay out, you'd put it in a little gully head somewhere near the water and blow your whistle and then that, 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 that's knocking, you know, the cattle are coming and knocking that gully head down and flattening it out like you would with a machine. So, um, so there's a bit of a double whammy effect there. If you're thinking about where you, where you want a bit of herd effect, um, uh, as you're putting, you know, leaks and stuff like that out, you can, you can sort of get a flow on effect from that as well. So. so it sounds like there's a way to take advantage of that herd effect for a regeneration impact without having to put in masses of infrastructure, like lots of fences and yeah. do like a cell grazing. You're still able to kind of get a bit of a herd effect. Uh, a little by- bit. Yeah. So, so this, the rotation we've got with our wieners is a five paddock rotation, but it's still quite hard to get, even though you're moving them, at, you know, every, couple of months it's still quite hard to get herd effect because there's still you know seven or eight hundred cattle over five thousand hectares in the paddock sort of thing so that's where you can that's where you can direct their pressure more to where you want it so you can you know so you're breaking up soil and you know breaking up hard pan and and trying to you know keep them off your your, um, areas where they're more prone to eating them out quickly so and what other um, interventions are you using for landscape regeneration and hydration oh so we do a lot of um we, we do a lot of grader and loader work um we don't have a very good grader at the moment so mainly loader work but um uh so wherever the loader goes we will just be looking out for areas that we can put in a ponding bank or or check banks and stuff like that um uh we, we have a you know we we have a um sort of a list of the main areas that need urgent you know, like where maybe where a gully head's about to hit a crab hole or something like that, or or a big gully head snaking up a river plain or something. We'll have we'll have spots where we where we've you know if the first time you're going past them in the load, you'll go in there and fix it, and then we'll have other category two and category three places that if you've got time. But um, but yeah, I mean, and and you know, we're fixing a lot of it's fixing erosion on roads, so we're we're fixing our roads, flattening our roads out. Um, you know, grading the windrows back over and sometimes just shutting a road down and moving it up, up, up the, you know, up the hill a bit where it's less prone to erosion. So we're just doing that stuff all the time. As we do other stuff, we're just constantly picking on little areas and, 
you know, trying to put a bit of mechanical intervention and then we'll use, you know, grazing pressure and self-herding and stuff where we can as well. Are there particular people, I know there's a number of people you work with across different areas like the range, uh, the self-herding and the uh, mechanical intervention. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about them just so people know who they are? Oh, okay, so there's a few guys on the on the sort of rehydration stuff. There's a few guys around. The local guy in WA is a guy called Richard Marva. He he runs Ezram, so they do. He goes around doing Ezram plans, but he'll also be able to give you you know a, a prescription for an area, what the right thing is to do for that area, whether it's some mechanical work and what kind of mechanical work it might be, or whether an area is just best to do it with grazing management. Um, so he's really good. Um, uh, in the Northern Territory, there's a guy called Cole Stanton who's um, uh, he's really good on the machinery stuff, and he'll actually come. You know, when he when when we manage to get him, he'll come and um, he'll come and jump in a machine and actually show you what you need to do in an area and then how to do it. Um, you know, what little steps you need at the end when you're putting in a check bank and stuff to make sure the water spills properly and doesn't get around to the end of the check bank and just cause another gutter somewhere else to make sure it spills out evenly and all that sort of stuff. Hugh Pringle from Emu is really good um, on that sort of stuff as well, and then and then there's a few you know there's a few local guys that have just been doing it for a bit longer than we have that are pretty handy to talk to. You know they've just really good at real you know over the years they've worked out what works in areas and what doesn't and all that sort of thing where the best bang for the buck is. And how do you monitor any improvements or further degradation? Like what kind of rangeland monitoring um, techniques do you employ? Well, we've got our um, pastoral monitoring sites. Um, we've got about, I think there's about 70 of them on both places. So we use the... the um, Do you say 70? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, we use the... We've got a... The Gascoigne Catchment Group's got an app app on a tablet that we use to, to monitor those sites. So it counts. So basically we can count plants and, and landscape function and, and erosion on those little plots and that'll come out with a score so you can actually relate it from one year to the next basically or every couple or every three years whenever you do it. But also we just – I take photo, lots of photos when we do work and quite a few photos from the air. Sticks, my right-hand man's got a drone when he does – you know, when he'll do a big area, he'll put a drone up and take a photo and then we'll, we can do that a couple of years later and all that sort of stuff. And so the last part in country I just want to ask you about is your feral pest burden. Do you have one? If so, uh, what form does it take? Um, so – We've got quite a few don- – we had a lot of donkeys. We've sort of got the numbers right down now. Um, there's been the local um, uh, the local biosecurity group's been doing donkey shoots. So so we've got donkeys down pretty well. Um, uh, d- dingo numbers are pretty high, but why the cattle have got a bit of condition on them, we're okay. We're not getting much predation on calves. So Dingo numbers are about right at the moment um, because um, they're keeping the kangaroos and emus down. So, you know, we don't have that many ca- – we don't have big waves of kangaroos like they do sort of further southeast, so, which is great. So that, that's a, that's one of the major things that stops country regenerating is is big mobs of kangaroos. So, um, yeah, the dog numbers seem to be about right, although we're really, really careful to make sure they don't – you know, get we don't get too many dogs or, you know, can – you get a bad season and the cows lose a bit of condition, you can start getting some major production losses pretty quickly. 
I guess that's a point to to ask about is you speak, you said you, you stock conservatively. Obviously, every pastoral lease has a stocking rate that the local department gives them, um, but it doesn't really account for the grazing pressure from non-livestock. So while you, your land might be able to carry, I don't know, say 4,000 head in a good year or, or more, um, I guess that's probably – I don't know how they account for the, the grazing pressure of, of your native animals like your, like your wallabies and kangaroos. So how do you kind of budget on on what they – on I guess on their numbers and the pressure that they're putting on your country? Well, we sort of end up um, – we're normally sitting just below recommended carrying capacity or we have been for the last few years um, – so that's a really loose figure and that was done, you know, a lot of those figures were done back in the 80s. They were um, increased three or four years ago. A lot of, they were, you know, it was done on a, redone on a desktop and we got, I think we got a 20% increase or something like that. But yeah, look, they're, they're, a, they're a pretty rough figure. It was pretty hard. I mean, it would have been pretty hard for those guys in the ag department in the early days to come up with that figure, not having known, you know, how many, not having seen how many, you know, stock the country could run and, what it looked like so oh that's a really difficult one we try and you know we sort of loosely base on that obviously going up and down with seasons but it is a bit of a i think there's a you know there's a tool missing there for for new i think for for new people in the bush to work out how many you know what sort of stock numbers they can run i think i think we need you know they, they they've tried the, the department's tried to pedal out you know the food on offer you know uh, squares and all that sort of stuff, which is really difficult to do in shrublands. It's really hard to look at a, you know, a, a hectare of land and say how many cattle could I put on that for a year, sort of thing, because there's so many different. You know, you, they're, they're just eating just a little bit of everything. So um, that's really hard to do. Um, but I think you know there there could be a tool. They could develop a tool that could help people work out stocking rate and and. And as you say, you need to take total, total grazing pressure into account. But uh, you know, I think s- some sort of thing based on on um, on different land systems with maybe some flip cards or something like that, so you can have a look at a flip card and have a look at the what's in front of you and work out whether you're in, you know, whether that system's in fair, poor, fair, or good condition. And then maybe there could be a bit of a stocking rate associated with that that you could use for that particular season. But it is, you know, it's pretty tricky to do. But um, uh, like I say, we just stay conservative and we're just always out and around and watching and looking and making decisions all the time on what, you know, how we should move, where we should, you know, whether we should move cattle from one area to another or whether we should start mustering or, yeah. So now that we've got a pretty good understanding of the landscape on Linden, I want to move to infrastructure and see how all those things we've just spoken about impacts your decisions when it comes to infrastructure, uh, whether that's install- installing new infrastructure or managing um, existing ones. So let's start off with fences. Uh, fences, we just we've sort of moved along over the years from you know when when things are really tight, there were two barbs and a plane and stuff like that. Now we just put four barbs everywhere, four barbs and sort of posts every twelve meters or something like that. Um, is our standard thing with fences. We're just, we're just really careful, um, with how much fencing we put up because, uh, we've, we're just, you know, we're so prone to erosion. So anywhere you're going to put a cut line in the fence, you're going to end up with some sort of erosion. So we're just, we're just really careful whenever we, 
think about putting a fence up that that we're not going to damage the country and um so we're really careful with where we put them uh and um and just yeah we're, we're sort of uh we don't have i mean apart from our sort of 10 holding paddocks around the house um that we use for mustering time and and then the wiener rotation um we don't have a lot of fencing and and um and we're pretty we i don't think you know we'll i don't think we'll have a heap of fencing in the near future either um but i certainly i do if if i get you know i've got a couple of areas i've completely fenced off and kept cattle out of so you know i'll continue to do that um probably every year i'll i'll try and target another little area that i'll fence off and just little crab holes and stuff like you know maybe a couple of hundred hectares or something um just to to try and rehabilitate a, a you know a valuable little riparian area as well so I, I feel like often when I speak to people and we talk about fencing, one of the biggest barriers or, or primary reasons for not putting in more fencing is just the capital expenditure. But it sounds like for you the primary reason is actually because the country is so fragile, if you were to put in lots of fencing, it, like you said, it will create erosion. We just have to be really careful where you put it. You've got to try and go directly across creeks and washes. You've got to try – yeah, you so you – you know, if you go across a wash on an angle, the water will tend to start running down your fence line. But it's both, you know, that's massively expensive, especially in such low carrying countries. So, you know, it, it, every fence per animal is probably twice the cost it might be in the Kimberleys because, you know, the country carries half as many or maybe less cattle. So, so there's both. But, um, I mean, you can, you can certainly put fences in a lot of areas up on top of ridges and stuff like that where you're not going to cause major erosion problems. But, um, and, you know, we, we get big rivers and big, you know, we're fa- fairly big floods and stuff like that. So there can be lots of, you know, we, we try and cross our rivers as, you know, rarely as possible because otherwise you can spend half a year just putting, you know, river crossings back up. And where we do cross rivers, we try and cross in places where there's a really good gum tree on either side and maybe one in the middle so we can run suspension crossings. I hate hate the idea of just putting four barbs over a river and every year cutting it free and <laughs> make it and making, you know, how much barbed wire must be downstream on some of these places that just refence refence rivers every year. I will try and avoid that at all costs. So if I've got to cross a river I'll use a cable and a and hang ring lock off it and that normally you know that that normally lasts pretty well, except in massive floods. If you, as long as you've got a really good, you need a really good tree either side. No, it's just, it's very interesting. I never thought about the fencing from an from a um the the, the perspective of of potential erosion and the impact on country. I always just put it down to capex. Mm. So I just yeah, I've learned something this morning, which is awesome. Well, I guess there's just a lot of fall in this country, so you know it's um. It falls down quite steeply and the, and a lot of our land systems are very clayey. So as soon as you, you know, as soon as you sort of, um, as soon as you put a cut line in or something like that or, or create a place where cattle are going to walk along all the time, um, sooner or later you're going to need check banks and stuff like that to stop the water running down it. And so what about your rivers? You mentioned you, you've got a lot of buffalo around the rivers. So obviously that's prime grazing country, but do you, do they graze into the river or are the rivers fenced off? Or? No, we don't have the rivers fenced off. That's probably if I, when I, um, went fencing again, that'd be what I'd primarily do is, is fence rivers off. So you can use them, um, you know, you use them as a big long lane and then get the cattle out. Um, but we've, mo- we've, we've slowly chipped away moving all our waters off the rivers. So. You know, if we've got a good bore on the river now, we'll pump it a, you know, a K or so out just, just so they're not actually camping on the rivers. So 
we do everything we can to try and, try and take the pressure off them. Uh, that's probably the next step. If we start to break this place up, I'd break it up. I'd break it up following rivers along. Even if I don't completely fence the river off, you'd fence down one side of it. So, so you could, you know, if, if they congregated on the river, you could just shift them through onto the other side of the fence if you had a water there. So, yeah. And so how are, so the next, the next part of infrastructure is water. So what's your breakdown of, you know, bores or turkeys nests, dams, um, relying on natural surface water like rivers? Well, we don't really, we're pretty much all bores, tanks and troughs now. In the years when we changed over for sheep for cattle, we had, you know, we put in a lot of little ground tanks and, and just pumped into them from a windmill or something because, um, money was really tight, but, Pretty much everything. We've got a couple of wells that we still use, but I think so. We've got seventy-five watering points, and and they're nearly all bores now. So we're always, you know, every year we when the driller comes past, we drill a few bores. Sometimes we have a crack in new areas, and other times we'll just put a bore next to an old well or an old steel bore, so it's there ready to go when we need it. We've we're down to about we're slowly getting out of windmills. <laughs> we're down to about I think we're down to about eighteen now, and the rest are solar pumps. Um. So yeah, we love solar pumps. They're, um, they're great. So anyway, as windmills, you know, as heads blow up, we'll just lay them down. And so there's the odd place where you know you've got a really poor supply, um, like a you know a weeping well or something like that. There's still a, there's a few places here that it's really hard to find underground water. So you know those big wells they dug um, were really good for that because they just a well with a windmill on top of it. You just sort of suck what water was there, and you could run a few cattle there. So we don't have many of those left, but there's still a couple that we haven't done away with because they just perform. You know they just you know they, you put fifty cows on them over summer and they perform a handy role. But um, yeah, what's the water quality like here? Oh, it varies. Um, linen's a bit better than tower. A lot of towers about three to four thousand parts. A lot of linden's fifteen hundred to two and a half thousand parts, I suppose. So yeah, you know, we'll drill in some areas that we just can't, that the water's really salty and we can't use it. We've got a couple, we've got a couple, we've got one at eight thousand parts actually that they water on, would you believe? But so that blows the equations out of the system. So we've got a couple at, at 5,000 that we struggle to get cattle to stay on and another one at eight that we have no trouble getting cattle to stay on. So there you go. You can't be prescriptive on that even, can you? No. But, but yeah, mostly it's, you know, a couple of 3,000 parts, I suppose. So it's not great, but, but it's, it's perfectly good enough for production on cattle. You know, I don't, I don't think we haven't got many waters that, that limit production. I don't think. And so of the, all those watering points you've got, which did you say there was 75? About 75. Yeah. yeah. So do they all come off a bore each or can you have bores that can feed several uh, water We've points? got about three or four pipelines. So there's a place just south of the house here that, that all the underground water is salty. It's a big basin. So, yeah, we've got a couple of pipelines sort of leaving close to the house and heading further south. So one of them has two waters hanging off it. One of them has about five. We've got a couple of other little just four and five K pipelines. So, so most of them are just a dedicated bore to a water. A couple of them are, you know, bore, a bore will do two or three waters, but, um, we're pretty lucky. We don't have to have massive pipeline systems here because there's underground water in most places. Yeah. And so do you rely on any dams or turkey's nests? No, not really. No, no, we've got, we used to have a catchment dam. Uh, there's one big catchment dam south of the house in that area I was talking about where we can't get underground water, but we've, we've shut that down now because the sheep degraded it so much, that area. So we've, we've blocked off that dam. 
we, we have a lot of semi-permanent water. The Linden River's full of semi-permanent pools. The crab holes are semi-permanent. Got a few billabongs. Um, so that's really handy for drawing cattle off, you know, away from watering points when it rains. Uh, on, on the Yanri River up on Tower, there's about four or five permanent waters. So cattle continue to hang on them, which is a bit of a pain in some ways. It makes them hard to manage and, you know, hard to get to and hard to interact with the cattle. You know, we like to interact with cattle whenever we can on, on windmill runs and always, you know, just when we go to a watering point, just take the opportunity to drive, you know, drive around them a little bit and, you know, maybe tuck them back in and just, you know, just training them for mustering time. But, um, so river pools sort of stop you doing that too much, but we've only got a couple of them. So, yeah. So obviously if you've got some semi-permanent water around, I'm guessing you don't really rely on trap yards. So you, you do no, we've mustering. got no trap yards. No, yeah. no, we, we probably, there's areas we probably could trap. Um, yeah, but, uh, it, most of the places would be, is difficult to trap because, um, we do have, and some of our semi-permanent waters will go for six months sort of thing. So. So talk to me about your yards. I guess so obviously it was sheep here at some point. So you've been, you've had to come in and build new cattle yards from scratch. Yeah. Have you picked up things over the years from visiting other places and kind of designed your, have you got your perfect yard down pat yet or are you still making oh, adjustments? Sort of. So we've got, we've got seven sets of yards. Um, four of them are just a shell with a race and a, and a lead up yard and the next yard back. So we're slowly just filling them in with panels. Um, but we cart, you know, we just cart about, it only takes about 50 panels and a crush and a race to, to get them operational. But the three permanent yards are, are pretty much all the same design. So, um, which I'm pretty happy with. I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of curve races and, and bugles and tubs and stuff like that. Uh, so we've got big square yards and, and the yards are really big. So, you know, when you drive, the, the three permanent yards are pound drafts. Um, I still really love pound drafts. We've got a race on them as well, and the house yard's still got a three-way draft off the end of the race, so you can do both. But just for looking at your cows and assessing them, I love being in there with them and love having a pound draft. So they're all a pound. The yards coming out of the pound are all really big, so when the cattle have had the stress of having to go down the, the middle and the really tight area, I think they should be able to come out into a really big yard and go and stand in the back corner and, and just, you know, uh, de-stress and come back down. I think that's really important. Um, we have lots of man gates. So when you put cattle in a smaller yard, you don't get in there with them. Um, so you put them in a small yard, then you go around the man gate to the front of the yard, ready to fill the next yard. Uh, really big's handy because you can put a horse in there if you have to. So the, at the house yard here, we often have. Uh, a couple of horses in the yard and we, we can actually draft at the house yard with three. Um, so one in the pound, uh, me in the lead up yard, just let him in the pound one at a time. And you can just have one horse behind that doing everything else pretty much. So, uh, which is good. Like uh, the, 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 sh- the, um, the four yards, the shells take a few more people than just not, they're just not as good. And, um, so that you need four or five to, to draft them, but. I just like having, you know, being able to run very few people in the yards because, um, you know, you've got your five or six mustering and then if you only need three and maybe someone on numbers drafting, you've got a couple of spare people that you can have working your wieners or just have a couple of horses in the yards and, you know, when they're not, the one that's not putting cattle up can be, you know, out the back sort of riding through the next mob, just bringing them down so, you know, they're not too stressed when they come through the through the yards, which is, you know, especially with young cattle, it's really important that the first time they go down the middle of the yards that they're not really stressed because that's how they'll be 
I reckon, for the rest of their lives. So if you can just make sure that those cattle coming up have, you know, had a little bit of interaction and, and you know, had a few little positives before they get down the middle and have a big negative with all the pressure, I think it sets them up pretty well. So, so yeah, we're, you know, we're really particular how we work the yards. But, yeah, you can work with any style of yard, but I, I certainly – um I certainly like the ones, any yard that, you know, you, that's almost a bit of a choice for the cattle growing up rather than just being, you know, having a fully clad race in a tub and you will go regardless because that just doesn't set them up for a life of easy handling, I don't think. What about technology and innovation? What are you doing in that space? We've got tank monitors everywhere um, and we just, we put a couple more in every year. I think I'm up to about 25. Um, we really like those because it's just so important here in summer that your cattle never have a day where they're not getting a drink. I, I think it's just, you know, it's to be avoided at all costs. Uh, just a, a little setback on the first hot day in December can have a huge flow on effect. So, so, um, you know, even though we get still get round all our waters at least once a week, um, just knowing that. You know, those, and a lot of our tanks might only have three or four days capacity. So just knowing that those cattle are never, ever going to be, you know, when it gets really hot in summer, they've always got to have plenty of fresh water. So yeah, I really like, I, I think they're, you know, that tank monitoring is an absolute no brainer and, and, and not used as an excuse to not get around your waters. I might, I mean, you might, you might just cut it down a little bit, but you've still got to be out, you know, you've, you've still got to be out there with your cattle and in your landscape and, like I say, all our decisions that we make are, are based on um, based on constantly watching your your land and your cattle, and you know, like I said, it's it's very hard to come up with a prescription. So you've just always got to be, you know, tweaking and watching what's going on. So we really like a remote sensing, but it's but not as a um, not as a reason to not get around and get out there. But certainly, you don't need to be out there as much. Um, We've actually, through a project, we've got a few Cirrus tags running around, just a handful um, uh, that we didn't put in. They were put in for a, for a trial that um, is being done to see how cattle interact with dogs. Um, so we've got a few of those. Um, what else have we got? Um, Are the dogs tagged as well? Like, can you tell when they're interacting? Yeah, they try. That, that's the hard bit, collaring a dog. Uh, they caught one last year. And collared it, then it got caught in the trap. So that was, oh, that was no. super disappointing for them. But, um, uh, yeah, that's the hard bit trying to collar the dog, yeah. <laughs> but they've got a couple of collared. Have, and you, have you been able to watch? Do you have access to the data of where the cattle are going? I've got access to the data. Is of where that the cattle quite are. interesting to see? Are they going where you think they'd go? Like just, I guess, without the dog aspect, are they, are they using country the way you think they're using country or? Well, I just don't really look at it as much. It's not a very good mapping program that it's laid on, but, but I do, I certainly do look at it before we muster and stuff like that. But, but yeah, I, I can't, I, I, I sort of, I can't see myself going into, Location tags in a big way just yet. I'm, I'm still sort of trying to sitting on the fence and trying to see the worth in it, but it, it has been an interesting thing to do to see where they are and where they go. There's certainly, you know, we put, we had a few left when some came back from next door and we put them in them to see if they'd go back because it was a corner that's not very well fenced. Um, because of, because of hills. So we put them, um, so we put some in them and put them in a holding paddock. 
uh, for a couple of weeks before we let them out again. So it was in, they didn't go back. So that was, there's lots of interesting little things you can do, you know, to just to know what you need, you know, how long cattle need to remain in an area to take away their urge to go back to the area they like. And there's a lot of interesting stuff around that because, you know, it's really hard to know what they're thinking and what they're going to do, isn't it? Like Mm -hmm. sometimes you think you've, you know, you've got cattle sorted out and you know what they're going to do and then they'll do something completely irrational and go, why the hell they do that? Um, so I think things like serious tags are really handy to just, you know, just get a, a better understanding of, of, you know, what's making your cattle tick and what their triggers are and what's causing them to move and whether they'll stay in areas and, you know, how, you know, how far they like to travel and all that sort of stuff. So it's good for that. I, I can't see myself, you know, the, I think tags are still 150 bucks each, but even if they get down to 30, which they're predicted to, I can't see myself putting them in everything just yet, but I am sort of waiting and watching to see what happens for sure. Yeah. And so any other programs, apps, uh, technology that you're using as well? Uh, yeah, well, I use, like I said, I use the Gascon Catchment Monitoring app, which is actually being fixed up at the moment to make it a web-based system so it doesn't get thrown out every time there's an iOS update like it was. So I use that to monitor. Uh, I use AgriWeb. Uh, I use the paddock map on AgriWeb a lot. I've got, um, uh, you can put all your roads and fences and windmills on it. So I, I use the, um, and then there's a, there's a set when you click on each windmill, there's a little place you can put a description and then notes. So I use that a lot. I use that as my windmill book. So if you're going around a run, you can just click on every windmill and see if anything's needed or when one breaks down, you can see when it was last pulled and all that sort of thing. So, so yeah, I use that as my windmill book. Um, I use it a lot when we're planning roads or fences or something like that or cut lines. That's when it, because it's overlaid on a satellite map. So basically, if we want to put a new fence in an area, I'll make it in the, I'll make that fence in the office first. And then I'll go out and, you know, ground truth that and make sure it's okay. Because, um, but you can, you can use it to make sure you follow the best, you know, the best route. So you have to knock over the least amount of trees and go over the least amount of creeks and make sure when you go over creeks, you're going straight across them and not diagonally across them. So you don't get that erosion trouble. Um, so yeah, it's really, AgriWeb's great for that. Oh, the mapping program's what I mainly use. There's a, there's another one where, where you can put tasks in. Um, uh, so you can just drop a little, you can just drop a little symbol wherever you need to do something. And I think on farms, people use that a lot, like big farms. If someone goes past a broken wire and doesn't have a chain strainer, you just drop a task and the next person coming along can see that and fix it. But we're starting to use that for our erosion. So wherever we need to do um, regen work or rehab with a loader, we use we drop a task, um, and they they're they're sort of rated urgent, you know, and non-urgent type things. So whenever the loader's going past, if there's a little taskbar right where you're going, and it's an urgent one, you go in and fix it. Do whatever you need to do. So um, yeah, re- AgriWeb's a good one. Does that require connectivity when you're out in the paddock? Because I know you not to see where you are. Now. No, no. No, so so it's got um, so as long as you've got an iPad uh, which has got the capacity to have a SIM, which I think they probably all do now. Um, you don't have to have your SIM in your iPad, but you have to, you know. So that then it's GPS enabled, and you can always see where you are on your iPad, like you can with Hammer Maps or one of those programs as well. Yeah, and then so you can make a note when you're not in service, but when you come back into service, then it kind of probably backs up and uploads to a cloud yeah, or something. Yeah, so if you're going along and you see a, where erosion's about to run into a crab hole or something, you can drop your little you can it'll drop your little thing where you are, your little um little note on the on the map where you are and yeah. 
Very handy. Next time someone sees it, say, yeah, and then it uploads when you come, uploads onto the server when you come back into, as soon as you come back into range, synchronizes. All right. Anything else in that space before we move on to the next section? Uh, not that I can think of at the minute. All right. So we've done landscape and infrastructure, which, uh, brings us to cattle. So what, um, breed of cattle are you running? Uh, so we've been a pretty much a pure drought master herd, um, uh, probably for the last 10 years, I suppose. We, 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 when we, 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 we moved into cattle from sheep through the 1990s. Um, in the mid, mid nineties, we were lucky enough to have the option to buy drought master stud, which we did. And, um, um, which has been great because it's given us complete control over our genetics, basically. So, um, that's down. We had that up at the station for a while. And then the, in the millennium drought, we, we, you know, bought a couple of farms and, Started buying farms in the, you know, so we've, we've got it down at one of our farms now. So, so we've been able to shift to, you know, a pure drought master herd pretty quickly. And we've managed to get rid of most of our horn. We haven't been doing any, the next bull I buy in the stud, I'll certainly make sure is a pole pole bull because I hate horns. I hate dehorning. Um, so most of our cows now are visibly non-horned, although there's probably still a little bit of pH gene in that. There's probably still a fair bit of pH gene in them. We've just, we've always bought, um, visibly polled cattle for the stud. And I think eventually that works, but I think quite a few of the, the, the stud size we bought have still been a pH bull, but just with not, not showing any horn. So, you know, we still do get the odd bit of horn in wieners, but very little. So, um, uh, in later years, we've started putting, uh, red Angus infusion through them because we've got our own stud. We've been able to put, uh, you know, we use a Red Angus sire over a Drought Master cow in the stud as a terminal sire. So then the Red Angus Drought Master bulls come up here and we use them mostly as a terminal sire too. We, we, we're a bit nervous about having too much Angus run through the cow herd, but we certainly like that splash of Angus in, in the calves because um, it really helps. They're just, they're heavier at this. They're always heavier at the same age. Uh, and they do, and they always do 0.1 or 0.2 better in the feedlot. What is it so, that makes you nervous about having a higher Angus content through your herd? Well, I'm just, I'm, I'm, you know, I just know how bad it can get here. So I, I have noticed, however, that the 50 50 bulls seem to do almost as well as the drought master bulls, but. We've just got to be so careful when we go into these really dry seasons that we've got cattle that can, you know, and I think that applies for the whole top end. I think, you know, we've all got a responsibility animal welfare wise to make sure we're running cattle that can handle the environment. And it's hot, you know, it's hot in, it's, it's one of the hottest places in Australia here in summer. You know, hence we'd never use black bulls here because they just attract so much more heat. And, uh, yeah, you just, you just have to be super careful. And that, and that's why we've, for years, we've selected cattle with, with a really big spring of the rib because that is just uh, enables a physically larger rumen. So they can just put more lignin in it. So there's more, you know, so, so we, you know, you can get your cattle much more able to handle dry times and, you know, lignified tucker by just making sure they're big broad cows. So they've got a lot of stomach room. So their rumen can really swell out to the largest possible size. So, so, um, we're careful of that. So I think, you know, I think, um, our cows have got a fairly good constitution now, but, um, uh, but that, I mean, so I think one of the things with boss Taurus cattle is they just getting calf younger. So we don't, you know, we don't manage our heifers a lot because if you don't have to manage your heifers 
as much. It's you know it's a big cost saving to not have to. So so our bigger heifers we can we put straight back out. You know our, our um you know once we've weaned them and settled them and got them exactly how we want as far as temperament wise, we'll we'll put our bigger ones out with back out with the cows and the little ones go through the system with the steers through the through the rotation. So we don't manage our heifers a lot. So therefore we're really happy with the drought master because they won't really won't get in calf till they're two. So, you know, a drought master will get to two years old, it'll start to cycle, get in calf, have the first calf at three and hardly ever miss one after that. Or hopefully never would miss one after that. Whereas a you know, a boss taurus heifer has to be managed till she's two because she'll get in calf at one, which you just or one and a bit, which you you know, at three hundred kilos and you just don't want that in this country. You know, she's She'll, she'll almost always miss the next calf. If, if, she, if she's calving down, you know, if she's getting a calf at 300 kilos, she's almost always going to miss the next one. So you're not gaining a calf anyway. In three years time, you, you know, in two years time, you're, you're still at one calf, but, uh, you've got a, you know, you've got a cow that if it's a dry season at best is stunted and not the cow she could have been. And at worst is lying under a tree somewhere. So I think that's why we're nervous of, um, that, that, that's, you know, we, we do, just, if you run a boss taurus herd, you've just got to manage your heifers a lot more. You've got to, you know, make sure they don't, you know, probably control mate your heifers even. Mm. It's a really great point to make because I'd never actually considered that high fertility could be a disadvantage or a negative, but I guess it really depends on your system and, and the management of yeah. the cattle. Yeah. Um, I always thought, you know, you just want more fertility, more fertility, more fertility, but. There can be disadvantages to well, that. Well, we're just a really, I mean, I think that this Gascoigne Pilbara just lends itself to a really low cost cow calf model. And that's just part of having a really low cost. Uh, it doesn't mean that you don't spend a lot of time with your cattle and you don't care, but, um, but it just really lends itself because it's so unreliable, just lends itself to a, you know, a really low cost model and the drought master. And I don't think, um, you know, Boss Taurus cross cattle like drought master, um, they just get in calf later, but after that, I don't think they're any less fertile. I mean, you know, you ask anyone in the Gascoigne that's, that's got droughty or Brahmin cattle and they calve like crazy, but they just don't get in calf as young. So it's, it's perfect. I mean, why would you want to, why would you want to mess with that and, you know, have underweight heifers getting in calf in this country when the next year you could get 50 mil of rain? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is very true. So in this area, I know there's not as much access. Obviously, the whole region runs like it's lower numbers compared to other parts of Australia. So there's not as much access to veterinary services. So how does that impact you uh, in terms of preg testing or spaying cattle and managing your females in that that regard? Well, I preg test myself um, and I'm not very good at it. I've been doing it for about probably 30 years, but I'm still not that great at it. But I can tell if they're pregnant or empty most of the time. Um, so we don't actually preg test that much. Um, if a cow, a lot of our stuff's on visual assessment of a cow. So so if she's wet, obviously she's right. Um, uh, if she's dry and, you know, then a lot of time they're visibly in calf, so you don't need to worry. If she's dry and huge and, you know, and just looking, you know, looking, looking dry will, We'll either preg test her or sometimes we'll just throw her straight on a truck. Like, you know, if, if something's, you know, something's massive and dry and we can see straight away that it's, um, that it's not pulling its weight, well, it just goes. And, you know, often I'll preg test them to make sure they're not too far in calf to truck. But even if they are in calf, a lot of the time I'll, I'll send them anyway because I just know they haven't been, haven't been doing their bit. So, so we don't certainly don't do stacks of preg testing. 
and don't feel we have to do stacks of preg testing. I think, you know, the less thing, the less times you can put a cow down the race and the less things you can do to her when she comes through the yard, the better for her. So we do, so we do spay cast, you know, we do spay cows at, you know, 10 or 11. Um, we, we try and spay every second year. So every yard will get some, but that's getting increasingly hard to do because a lot of our yards might only have, um, you know, a thousand cattle going through them. So there might only be 50 or a hundred to spay. So it's pretty hard to get a spayer to come and stand around all day for 50 cattle. So that's getting hard to do as well. So, um, um, unless you spay yourself, which I've got no intention of doing. Um, I, I think, you know, you've got to be, it's a really, technical thing to do and and there's a lay spayer in this area and he's brilliant at it but you know for that reason he's quite hard to get so um so that's a little bit of a problem but um i I think you know cast for aged cows i think if you don't if you know it's great having them spayed and being able to sell them at 550 kilos next year to the abattoir but i think in times where you just can't you can still you can still take those cows off easy enough. You can still you can take them off with their calves and sell them as a cow calf unit. So there's still other options. We used to spay all our cull heifers here, but now I just send all our cull heifers down to the farm so I don't have to spay them. So then you've got the option to sell them either empty or open um, later on. So um, so yeah, we just we don't need that much vet work really. In a in, you know in a in a nutshell, spaying's the main one. So that farm for those coal heifers is quite handy rather than having to have a dedicated paddock and really try and make sure you're keeping those bulls out. You can send them down to the farm, which is obviously a lot smaller than the station yeah. and they're easier to manage and make sure they're not getting in with yeah. the bull. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the farm they're on's never got any bulls on it. It's just a, it's all followers. So, so I mean, and the, I don't even think the neighbours around there run cows and calves. So, so God forbid anyone got in calf, you'd have a Mary Magdalene moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yeah, so it's just—I mean, it's a—it's—it's it's a no-brainer with you, you know. If you don't have to, if you don't have to do, you know, if you don't have to spay an animal, you wouldn't, would you? Because yeah. you know, it's just—it's just another thing that's going to mess with its head a bit, and you know, there's—you know, there's a chance of loss and all that sort of thing. So, yeah. What are you looking for when you're culling your cows? You said you like to spay them or, or try and turn them off at ten or eleven, so that—that's an age one. So. At that age, you want them out. Is there anything else that you'll cull them out for? Earlier? Well, obviously, you're culling out for for you know lack of production. So, if, so if something's empty, you you know empty and dry, it's going. Obviously, um, uh, you know, we're normally there's no cows that come through with. Oh, you know, I'm on, you know I'm always getting rid of stuff with horn, but there's hardly any horn cows now. So, you know, most of them come out as heifers, uh, and there's only a handful of them. But but I don't want any horn. Uh, then obviously it's just structure and, and, you know, size, like, um, size and weight and growth and all that stuff. Um, and like I said before, I'm just really big on, on constitution. The cow's got to have, can't be, a, I don't want any flat rib, narrow headed cattle and they're quite easy to pick. If a, if a cow's going to be narrow at the ribs and it, it's going to have a narrow head and it's going to be really narrow looking from behind on the, across the pin bones. Uh, and those same cows have problem carving as well. So. So I'm always trying to get out those narrow flat rib cattle and, um, uh, you know, those, and then you've got to look at carving ease and, um, and udder and stuff like that. So those cows that have got the high pin bones you don't want because they're not going to carve as easy. Um, the calf's got to sort of go uphill to get out if you like. So you've got to have a bit of, you know, you've got to have that fertility through your cows. So there's got to be a bit of fall from the hip bones to the pin bones. Yeah, so just the obvious stuff, really. I'm, I'm just, 
I think probably all the same stuff that everyone else does. We're just, we're just really, really big on, on that spring of the rib because we think that's, that's the engine room. What? And how do you manage your wieners? Uh, so they all, so like I said, the cull heifers go straight down the farm. The smaller, the smaller end of the steers goes down the farm. So we try and send all our smaller wieners down so they don't have to, cause we found that the, you know, the, obviously the little 200 kilo guys really battle for the first summer here. So basically what we've got left up here are our bigger end of our, um, fresh cut steers and our smaller keeper heifers. They all do, they're all in a rotation together. So I think there's 700 in it this year and there's five paddocks. So. They're making their way around that rotation at the moment. They're sort of 5,000 hectare paddocks and they're good for, well, we had, um, this year they're good for two or three months. So, and, and most of those, if we get a summer, most of those will end up down the farm in April anyway. So mostly we're thinking that, um, uh, sorry, if we don't get a summer and even if we do, you know, most of them will go just to make sure the paddocks can recover. So it's normally only sort of an eight month rotation and they'll be gone. Um, but if we get a massive season, we'll try and keep some, we'll try and keep someone, get them right through to slaughter weight here, which we can normally do by the next spring. What's the average, uh, weaning weight here in a, in a good year versus a bad year? Um, I reckon, so this year was an interesting one because it was quite dry at the top end. So we probably weaned down to 150 up there. Um, not super dry. Um, and down this bottom end, um, Oh, we had weaners still on well over 200. Um, so, and, and we'll do that quite a bit if we get a really good season because those, um, those little steers that you cut and leave on mum, they're just, they're just making money. So we, we know that, you know, if it goes bad, we can get them off in April, but we certainly, I mean, we, in a, in a good year, we certainly don't radically wean. We, we just know that, that, you know, those little steers, if they, if we, um, leave them on mum at 220 or 230 kilos, we know that by the time we muster next year, they're going to be 400. If it's a good season, they're going to be 430 kilos with no teeth and they're just, they're just jumping out of their skin and they're just, and they're making money. So, and mum's still getting back in calf. Yeah. Yeah. That's in this country, just, yeah. if, if, if it's a, if it's a reasonable season. And so that, that's just where, you know, all countries different, isn't it? Cause you'd never dream of, of doing that further north, even though you can carry a lot more cattle up there, can't you? But, mm. but we don't get that big crash every year. I mean, we get big crashes, but it's not, it's not just a big summer crash. Like, you know, our cows can go right through a summer and come out of it looking really good, even if we don't get any rain. If it's been a big, you know, if it's a, if you got a big haystack from the year before, because the feed re- retains its quality even after it dries or retains some quality even after it dries, because. You know, we're just such lower rainfall and lower stocking rates. So, but yeah, so weaning's a, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? There's so many factors to think of when you're weaning a calf. And I guess that that's one of those hard things because I guess it comes down to experience. You know, mostly you're working out, you're working out what not to do because you've made a massive mistake before and it's cost you a heap of money and grief. So, but in a year like this, we, yeah, we will keep the weaners on. Really, you know, we'll keep calves on quite big. So you yeah. wouldn't have a an outlay for weaner pellets and have to have a whole like weaner program where you got them in the yards and you know drafting and redrafting and kind of and building them up to a weight where they can go out in the paddock. Yeah, because- no, no, we'll have them. We'll we'll have our weaners in the yard for a week, um, 
or something like that, sometimes more, and we'll mark them at the end and straight out in the paddock. So, but they'll, you know, they'll get a fair bit, they'll get a fair bit of work in that week. So, you know, any time that we're um, drafting in an outer yard, I'll have two or th- a couple of guys back on horses with the wieners, just tailing wieners out and working them through yards. And we like to, um, we like to make sure that every, you know, they all go down the, they all go down the race once or twice um, voluntarily. So it's, you know, you bring a mob of five up with a horse and just sit there until they've gone and then go get another lot. And it's just, it's a great way to spend a day anyway. Um, but so they, yeah, they'll just do that, that week and or whatever it is in the yards and then go out to the paddock. Um, knowing at the end of mustering, they'll come back in and get all that again and then be put into the next paddock. And, you know, every couple of months you're doing a paddock shift anyway. So they're always learning more, you know, in, so in good years, no, we don't have to do any feeding of wieners. And, but you know, that's all completely different in dry years. I mean, we, we, two years ago, we pulled every calf basically, except, you know, except the newborns. So, so, you know, well, it's, it, it changes massively, but you know, 2020, basically every calf, you know, probably 80% of the calves came off and, you know, right down to, to little calves. So they all went onto pellets and then got them up to 200 kilos and then down the farm. So it was just, you know, it doesn't resemble what we did this year at all. <laughs> yeah, I guess, but half your luck. Like, if you don't have to, then why would you? Oh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because if, you know, if the cow's going to get back in calf and the wiener's, you know, chuffing along on mum, what's it, it, it's, you know, making money. So what about, I mean, these cows sound pretty bloody incredible, to be honest. Like, they're just wonder cows. Nice. I have grown big sappy wieners getting back in calf. What do you have to do to look after them nutrition-wise? Are you, are you having to supplement um, or, or do something to – or are they just kind of magic No, cows? not very much. Not where we can help it. Um, if – like I say, we're, we're really conservative So in the way we stock. So, you know, in this country, if, if she's going into summer and she's got a bit of grass and a few shrubs in front of her, she's getting the protein she needs out of the shrubs, so – um, and we're not phosphorus deficient. We've tried on, we've tried so much over the years to get them to take phosphorus and they won't. So that's telling me that we're not phosphorus deficient. So we don't have that issue. So they don't, they don't really, you know, in a reasonable year, they don't really need anything. These cows, they'll, um, they'll tick away, uh, as long as, as long as you just got the, got the numbers right. So, so are you running a cow herd or a unicorn herd? Kind well, of you've got to like remember. Unicorns. You've got to remember, even though it sounds in a, you know, it sounds good. You've got to remember we've, we've we run very few cattle. Like, you know, that that's our that's the the flip side of of all the good things in this area is that we just, you know, we've got three thousand cows over one point two million acres. So, so I, I think it's because of you, you can do this stuff because when you're really conservative, and that's um that's certainly the. The block, you know, that's certainly the problem with this area is just, is you, you just can't run many, many cattle. So we'll move on to the people section now. So what, I guess, what kind of, we talked about how many cattle you're running. How many people are you running for an operation like this? Normally over summer, we've just got the family and, and my right hand man, Stixie. So us and, and one or maybe two. And then, uh, We'll probably get another uh, one or two in April to start our CapEx program. So mostly, uh, you know, this is in a normal year. Like I say, everything's variable here, but normal year we'll do all our CapEx work, April, May, June, July, and then end of July get into mustering. So by then, then we'll get a couple more for mustering. So we'll have six at mustering 
and a cook. And yeah, so other than that, there's, there's, there's just me or Stixie or that. And then there's me and Stixie and a couple of my extras to do a bit of fencing and yard building and, you know, whatever else we have to do. So I guess in terms of, do you, do you guys provide any training and education or, or look for more experienced people to come on? Like what works for you guys? Well, we have a lot of people that come back. Um, so most of our crews normally from the year before. Um, but we do try and put everyone through a stock handling course if we can. Uh, and I'm always just bleating on at them about that anyway. They get sick to death of that stuff. But, um, but we do, yeah, we try and, um, if we can do a stock handling course in maybe June or something like that to put everyone through that. And then obviously there's just training on the job stuff. Um, we try and, um, put everyone through an indu- a bit of an induction that my, that Kath does. So that's just a, you know, that's a, which gives people a basic rundown on stuff. If people are completely green, I'll give them a stock handling book and the, and the, there's a, there's a little, um, station handbook that someone made back in the 1980s, which is so out of date, but it's, it's kind of handy for people that are completely green. Like if you've got, which, which we do get maybe, you know, one, we, we do sometimes have one completely green person and, I've got a couple of books I can read just to get a bit of background and then and then the induction sort of helps them with stuff and then I just spend a lot of time going over over stuff with them. What about your living conditions, social aspects? Um, how does it look here at Linden? So Stixie's got his own house. Uh, we've got our house. Attached to our house is, is the kitchen and uh, dining room for the crew. So they And then there's a set of dongers and they've got their bit – they've got their own space over there. There's a there's a couple of little um, there's one where there's one other little um, building with a with its with an ensuite so they have they have their own space and but we all eat together at dinner time we have a big sort of big table in the uh, breezeway area between the between the two sort of thing and we we all eat together and yarn about the day and sort of keep morale up and stuff like that but yeah so and then you know they obviously we we provide everything for the crew so. So, you know, it's, I think it's not a bad package for people working on the land, um, because they just, everything's thrown in. They just, they can't, can't help but, um, put money away unless they drink or smoke at all, <laughs> which some do. <laughs> yep. Certainly a few of those around. And, um, what about time off? So I guess I, ne- I didn't really ask you, how long does mustering go for? Like a round of mustering? Oh, we mustering, we muster for about three months. Okay. Um, so during that, we do it, we, you know, often we'll, we'll do a bit of mustering in April. We'll clean our paddocks out, you know, these, um, the rotation paddocks and maybe sell some cattle or move some down to the farm or whatever we're doing. Uh, and then sometimes we'll do an area if we had an area that didn't go so well, you know, we'd got left with a few. You know, bigger wieners and mickeys and stuff. Sometimes we'll do an area earlier in the year, mm-hmm. just as a bit of a tidy up. But apart from that, we pretty much do one round. But we make sure we do one round really properly. And and most of the time, we you know we I think we get we get most of them. You know, there's never there's never many clean skins running around, um, or big clean skins anyway. So how does that? I guess between mustering and non-mustering time, how does that impact? I guess like the work schedule and when people get time off. Like, what does that look like here? Oh, so we we basically work five and a half days a week, but we're really flexible. You know, if someone wants to, if they want to go somewhere for a long weekend, we'll just work around that, and we give them really flexible hours. So basically, you know, normally Saturday mornings cleaning the garage and the utes and stuff like that, and then they'll um, and then they'll you know have the afternoon off and Sunday off if they want to go somewhere. Mustering time, we still try and have a day a week, 
if we if we can we and norm you know we just about always do but we might go for you know we might do a yard which might take 10 days and then they'll have a couple of days off or something like that but we certainly don't try and you know we don't do what you did in the old days and just you know it's dawn to dark for three months because that's not good for anyone not good for the cattle not good for the people um so yeah we still try and we even at mustering we still you know structure it i'll try and plan the whole muster at at the beginning on a big whiteboard last year we started a little snapchat group (laughs) one of the girls got snapchat on the phone and we and so we have a bit of a group like that and every time i change the whiteboard i'll take a photo of it and put it on the put it on that so everyone can see you know what's changed and where they're looking at their next day off and if anything's going to line up with it and you know then i'll try and you know line you know the panaguanica road out with it and maybe the junction races or something like that so people can go and have a bit of fun during mustering even though they're working hard um yeah so you know that's the long and short of it sometimes we'll work right through sometimes we'll have a weekend it's um I love that though. Yeah. I've heard of WhatsApp groups, never Snapchat groups. Yeah, it yeah. It's very contemporary. Well. It worked pretty well. Very well. Ended up with a bit of crap on it, but mostly it was work <laughs> stuff. And I was pretty good because I'd just take a screenshot of the AgriWeb map where we were mustering and flick it to everyone. Yeah. And they've all got AgriWeb on their phones as well. So they could see exactly, you know, each muster, they could see exactly what we're doing. And I'd, you know, draw a little line on the direction we'd go and all that sort of stuff. So who would have thought Snapchat had a function other than, you know, Dirty pictures and, uh, yeah, and, yeah. and ugly selfies. You know, yeah, that's and, and right. Filtered yeah. photos. Well, so. that's all I use it for. So, but um, yeah. but everyone's got it. So, you know. so it sounds. I guess for the last. Oh, actually, one other question. So, obviously, six is like a permanent full time. You've got some seasonal staff. Do they come in on a day rate, or do you kind of do like a pro rata salary with them? Like, oh, mostly seasonal staff are just a day rate. Yeah, yeah. So we'll just have a and and um yeah I'll just yeah. And yeah. for the last bit of people, what do you, I guess, and it sounds like you, you've kind of given bits and pieces away in this last few minutes, but to set like a good culture in the team and on the station, not just with your crew, but obviously you've got a family here as well. What are some of the things you do? Like it sounds like the Snapchat's a bit of a fun, lighthearted way to mm. kind of communicate and, and also making sure that you've got those days off so people do have some of their own time and some autonomy in their own lives. What other kind of things do you do you to try and set a culture? I think, you know, all eating together in the evenings, a good thing. We just, you know, have a bit of a debrief about the day and, you know, we make sure there's no phones at the dinner table and all that sort of stuff, even though it is in, in the Wi-Fi range. You know, that's a good thing. Sporadically, we sort of do morning meetings, although I'm probably not as good as having them always as I should, but. So I just try and keep everyone up to date with what's going on as much as I can. What you know, what the week looks like. So and so does Stixie. You know, Stixie always knows what what the week looks like and what we're doing. And and yeah, just just um, I think I, I don't think I you know I'm not great at it. I think it's most people on the land. It's their it's their biggest issue is communicating with crew and stuff like that. But I just think people you know if people know what they're doing and what's in front of them. They're, they're a lot, you know, the morale always stays a lot higher. And, and I just, you know, I just try and train people wherever I can. You know, whenever I'm out on a mob with someone, I, I try and, um, and, you know, just, just give them tips all the time and talk them through stuff. And, you know, if someone does something, you know, that really stuffs things up, try not to growl at them over the radio, mustering rather that, you know, to have a, try and just have a yarn about it later if you can, unless it's something really urgent that's got to change this second. But yeah, just, just try and debrief on stuff like that all the time and tell people what they did well and what they did badly at a, at a you know, at a later time rather than henpecking constantly. 
Yeah. All right. So I've got four questions to finish off this sticky beak. So the first one is, what is the biggest challenge that you face in your business? Rainfall. <laughs> I think, you know, just unreliability of rainfall, being able to, you know, to have a, a set plan on what you're going to do and stick to it, I think, is the hardest thing. And then, yeah, just, just, and I suppose just working with people as well and making sure that everyone's happy and, and achieving what they can and to the best of their ability. If you could be boss for a day, so I don't know, say like the boss of even prime minister, someone who can just is the boss of everything um, and bring something into the industry, what would it be? Oh, righto. Um, I just, I, I think, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty big about stock handling. I, I think that's something that most of us, you know, most in the industry could improve on and I've certainly – I've certainly had to from the way we used to do stuff. So I think that's probably, I think animal behaviour and stock handling is something that's probably needs to be taken into account a lot more than just production, you know, just thinking production and, 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 you know, how to get these animals through cheaper. And I I think, um, I think there's a bit of a missing link there around stock handling and animal behaviour for sure. So, so, you know, I'd like to see that. And, and also, I mean, and in, and in this area, we just, we just need to just keep working on the landscape and make sure we've got that, you know, improving mentality that it just has to be getting better all the time. And I think most people are are doing that as well. So yeah. on that same note, with you still being boss and having all this veto power, if there's something you could boot out of the industry, make sure it never happens again or just is a thing of the past, what would that be? Oh, well, I, you know, I, I think <laughs> – uh, got me on the run a bit here, but I, I, yeah, I think once again, it'd just be poor stock handling and, you know, blowing cattle in and jamming cattle through yards. I'd throw all the prodders in the world away if I could. Certainly prodders in yards, but just anything jamming cattle through yards, running cattle through yards. Uh, I just think is, is, um, you know, and it, and it still goes on a fair bit. I don't think it's doing anyone any favors and I don't think it even makes it faster. I think it makes it slower. You know, the, the, the culture of, you know, everyone jamming cattle down races and everyone running and, and, and blowing cattle, you know, I don't think it, I don't think it's productive at all. So I, I reckon I'd, I'd try and, you know, and, and, um, and I'm not trying to be holier than there. I mean, we used to do stuff a bit like that as well, but, but it's, um, it's certainly, uh, you can certainly do it a lot, a lot quieter and a lot better and still just as quickly. And finally, what is a non-negotiable for you? Oh, these are tricky questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think looking after your landscape uh, is probably a non-negotiable. I, I think, you know, when you're decision making and things are really tough, and and you know that, you know that if you hold on to that those cattle or, or do something with them, that you're going to, you know, negatively affect that that area pretty badly. I think that should be you should make the other decision. That's a non-negotiable, I suppose, for us. All right. Well, thank you so much for letting me have a sticky beak into Linden. No worries. Thank you.